Hey everyone, after more than 15 years in the business, I finally got a book published. If you want to do me the biggest favor in the whole world, please head over to MikeyOp.com and buy a copy. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and the book is named Ardor and it's about psychics and the history and future of the universe. I wrote it and I think you'll love it. Hi everybody, this is Mike Oppenheim and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week we have on the phone Ramona Emerson. She's a writer and filmmaker originally from Tohachi, New Mexico. I hope I said that right. And she has worked as a professional cinematographer, writer, and editor for over 25 years and is currently working on her eighth film project, Crossing the Line. She's an Emmy nominee, a Sundance Native Lab Fellow, a Time Warner Storyteller Fellow, a Tribeca All Access Grantee, and a WGBH Producer Fellow. And she just released her first novel, Shudder, which is the first of a trilogy. And uh, she's recently longlisted for the National Book Award and the Penn Open Book and Penn Hemingway Award. In addition to this incredible biography, um, she also has written a ton and done a ton for Native Cultural Identity in America, which is something I'm very much interested, and she was a crime scene photographer, which obviously segues into the actual topic of the show, Coffin Talk, talking about life and death. So, with no further delays, Ramona, how are you doing today? Doing great. Awesome. Did anything I say uh, sound wrong, or was I off track? No, not at all. Good job on Tohachi. <laughs> cool, thank you. So yeah, we, we have two standard questions we ask, and then the rest of the show is just all ad-lib, so I think I'm going to start with actually both of them today, and so the first one is... Simply, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you think you belong to? Hmm. Um, let's see. Well, I'm about to turn 50. I'm 49 right now. Um, I guess I grew up in, I grew up on the reservation, um, kind of in between Tohachi, New Mexico and uh, Santa Fe and Albuquerque, New Mexico. I kind of went back and forth. Um, but I spent most of my childhood on the res, and uh, just about every summer and holiday, I could, I could eke out out there with my grandma. Um, generationally, I guess, um, I guess they really call us the Gen Xers. I mean, I think we were the last one to, uh, you know, um, kind of live life on the edge. <laughs> uh, the latchkey kids, the ones that hadn't, you know, used to ride standing up in the front seat of the car. Um, <laughs> um, you know, just, I think we kind of raised ourselves. Um, and I'm really part of that generation. How much of that is amplified or applies to also just growing up on a reservation? <laughs> you know, a lot of that is. I think a lot of kids these days still live that way. Um, you know, your mom and dad work and they usually work, or your grandma or your grandpa, and they usually work a couple, an hour or two away from wherever you live. And you spend a lot of your time alone and you learn how to cook for yourself and provide for yourself because, you know, it's like you and your brothers and sisters or your cousins and you all just do what you got to do. And so growing up in that and spending time back there and then doing all of the projects you've done and how much of that was like a childhood vision versus it just came to you later in life? Mm, I guess, I guess it just came to me later. I mean, I guess when it was happening, I didn't really think about it. Um, I mean, now that I think about it, when I have I have my own son, I can't even imagine leaving him home uh, by himself all day. Or um, I was five, and the bus used to drop me off at home at my grandma's house. 
and you know I cooked hot dogs and watched Get Smart until Grandma came home at five. <laughs> and yeah, I can't even imagine my son having to do that now. Um, you know, but I think the world is also a different place than it was back then. Uh, back then on the res, you know, um, it was a different place, a different time, and I think a lot of people kind of just kept an eye out for you, even though you didn't know. Um, but nowadays, people will snatch you. <laughs> you know, so it's like a different world um, that our kids are growing up in, you know. Totally. And just for context, I'm 41. So I grew up at the like end of the same era. Like I definitely was literally making my own hot dogs sometimes. And I remember my parents just leaving my brother and I and going out and, uh, you know, like they had babysitters until a certain point, And sometimes it was just, it just felt different. But now with my own children and stuff, I, I would never see it the same way. But what about like, sociologically speaking, do you think we as a culture, the greater American culture that you and I both grew up in, do you think we're kinder and nicer and more receptive now i know that like social media and legacy media both wants us to think very strong opinions about this but in your experiential growth process how do you actually feel about how things stand now oh i think uh i don't know i think it's a much crueler world um and i mean just in the just in you know the interactions i've had i've been having to travel a lot too you know post-covid um and just the, I don't know, I've just been treated really nasty um, by a lot of people. I have no idea who they are. Like complete strangers will say horrible things to me for no reason. Um, <laughs> and um, I think, you know, I think people have changed. And I think um, I'm hoping that, you know, well, there's always shifts in, you know, the way society works and the way people think and believe. But I think right now is just a really rough, contentious time. And I think that people who, um, you know, who holds some pretty, pretty dark and, and racist and hardcore beliefs um, are kind of in the last three or four years, just kind of was get, were given license to be who they wanted to be out in the open. And I think they've really taken really full advantage of that. Um, and unfortunately, I've had to experience some of that firsthand and it hasn't been very nice. And I've, I've been surprised. I'm, I'm, I've, I, w- I remember being taken aback and just, you know, saying why are you saying things like that to me you don't even know me um and they had no good reason <laughs> so i mean i really feel like a lot of people just kind of feel like they have free range um to be cruel to each other and uh it's sad um i've never had that kind of um those kind of interactions before but it's been a quite after spending like two years locked in my house um <laughs> And then having to kind of, with this book, just kind of come out and like times a hundred, you know, and going traveling, being on airplanes, going to different cities, dealing with different people. I've just had that, you know, I've just been shocked, I think, by some of the, some of the people I've encountered. And the same time, though, I've also encountered really great people. Um, I've um, been to a lot of places where people have been so welcoming and, um, you know, uh, have been very kind and you know so I think it goes both ways um, but I think before I just never had that negative experience I think to that degree um, and it's been it's been a learning experience I'll say that no I mean that's first of all that gels a lot with my experience and and what I'm noticing and it seems like this just deep polarization is polarizing both extremes of kindness and extremes of uh, horrible cruelty right <laughs> And what what's even weirder to me is like 
my self-identity is white, but other people can other me, so to speak, as a Jew or a Cuban. And so it's like a weird phenomenon to be like in and out, depending on who is judging me and who's talking to me of a conversation and to see and hear comments. And then also to watch like legislation and what's like legal and illegal changing. So that's part of why I was really interested to ask you that question. And a lot of these questions is that I feel like hearing the actual experience of someone is a lot better and different than just like reading gossip or someone else's version of it. Right. Yeah. And so this show, just like in theory, is supposed to be promoting the softer, kinder side. It's not to say that bad things aren't happening so much as I want people to have voices and to like talk to each other about their experience. And and so the reason I link it to death, which is going to be my next question, is that I want our audiences to really be thinking about like, hey, when you're towards the end of your life or if you know it's it's ending, what are the things that actually mattered and what aren't? So the first question I will ask you is simply, what do you think happens when you die? Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeYop.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up today. You know, I kind of, I was raised Catholic and I have um, my own... I guess identity kind of as agnostic, you know, atheist person. And I just, I believe kind of like on a spiritual level that we move on um, as our spirits move on, our um, our energy moves on, whether it moves on to a, another life form, like we, we move on into another being or we move on to another world, like the Navajos believe that we're going to move on to the next world. And, I kind of, I believe in that. I think that our energy and our spirit mm-hmm. are here. And when we go, that energy and that spirit continue to exist. And um, I don't really believe that we go to heaven or hell. I don't believe in any of that. But I do believe that our spirits continue, um, whether it continues through our work or it continues through another being or it continues on to another world. I don't know. But um I, I just feel like that energy lives on and people are still able to feel and and um, experience the energy that you left behind. And so it's really important to have a very positive and, um, uh, you know, um, energetic spirit, I think, so that people will continue to feel your energy and continue to move forward even after you're gone. Totally. You know, your your career as a crime scene photographer is something that is, I mean, just anyone listening, they're probably like immediately their ears perk up at that. Uh, whether you like it or dislike it as an idea, it's, it's vitally important and it's also got to be very traumatizing and difficult. So my question is actually pretty specific. Did you ever feel or see the spirits of the things you were photographing? No. Um, I mean, I, I never had that experience personally. Um, I mean, I have felt negative energy in a place or um, like when something happens there, um, um, I guess you kind of feel the loss or the negative energy that remains there. I felt that whether I felt an individual um, entity or an individual spirit or an individual energy there, I can't say yes, I, I don't think I have. And but... Um, at least as the crime scenes go, but I've been to, you know, 
um, the scene, maybe the day after, like shortly after the incident happens. And you can just feel the sorrow and the negativity or the loss. I, I feel that you can feel that kind of energy there when you're when you're filming or you're you're photographing something or you're videotaping something. Um, I have though, um, aside um, from working in forensics, have actually seen objects move on their own. Wow! Please tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was um, uh, teaching a film workshop. Uh, summer film workshop for young kids at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Um, and this is like in 2015, I believe. And this is right after I finished like the first draft of the book. So before that, I hadn't really seen anything um, to this to this degree. Um, but we were there early in the morning. And I was there with one of my students, uh, kind of intern and another instructor. And I heard a noise behind me. And it made me turn my head and I myself and my intern watched my coffee mug move all the way down the table by itself and stop like kind of half hanging off the table. And we had been having all kinds of issues with the computers the day before. Anyway, I saw that and I just was like, Oh my God, did you see that? Did you, I mean, cause I thought, am I crazy? Am I the only one that saw it? But my intern was watching too. And she was like, Oh no, 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 I saw it. I saw it. Um, and so, I mean, I had never experienced anything like that before. But, I mean, I really saw that thing move all by itself. And we looked under the table. We were like, okay, who's messing with us? Or what? But there was nothing there. There was something in that place that it's in that room. I don't know how to explain it because I've worked, I had worked there for a few years before that. And I'd have to walk down that hallway at, at night in the dark. And it would always just creep me out. And I would always walk as fast as I could to the door. But then I had that experience and it was even more freaky for me to be in that area of the building. Um, and on the other side of campus, maybe about three years later, I was filming in this thing called the black box theater. And I was kind of moving towards the back end of the stage and I felt something in, in the curtains, like kind of pull my, pull me. And I thought maybe my sleeve had been snagged or something, or I, I mean, I was working, so I didn't really think about it. Um, and then about, I don't know, half an hour later, we left and my husband said, oh my God, what happened to your arm? <laughs> and I looked at my arm and I had these three huge raised scratch marks on my arm. Wow. Yeah. And that also really creeped me out. I haven't filmed in the black box theater since then. Um, but yeah, I didn't even feel it until he told me and I looked and I was like, oh my God. And I thought about that you know, my arm getting pulled into the curtains and that I was, you know, I didn't even think about it. I was like, oh, I must have snagged my arm on something or whatever. But yeah, there were very clear three little marks that would scratch me. So, and that campus is fairly new. And so, but I, but you know, that town of Santa Fe is an old place and that land, who knows what is, what's happened. You know, there's, it's, that's a place of some pretty major loss. And, um, in a, you know, Pueblo revolt, all kinds of things happened in that area and that space. And so, um, you know, I've had those experiences. Um, have I had anything really like maliciously come after me? No, but I think that there's, there's like I was telling you, there's like an energy. There's something there. There's people that don't want to go. They aren't ready to leave. Like remain, or their their energy remains. 
Um, and it's very real for me. It's very real. Yeah. I love that you said it's very real. And then you added for me, because that's kind of like how I try to approach all this and talk. And so I'm curious from one person who has these experiences, I can't shake and that they just affected me to another. Um, how important is it to you to know and understand what's at work in all of these situations? Is it at all important to you? Well, I guess it is in a way. Um, I, I, but I also feel like it's everybody's own personal experience and even these people, these entities or this energy, it's really not my place to tell them where or when to go when they're ready, they will. And I am there as a photographer or um, writing about them, whatever that is, whatever I'm doing in that space. Um, that's my own deal and, and I don't affect how they feel or how they move on. That's up to them. Um, so I kind of feel like in a way removed, um, but I'm there to do a job and I do it and, um, I have to do a good job. Um, and I feel like that's kind of their way of making sure I do it. Um, kind of being around and making their presence or their energy known that way you, you kind of feel a commitment to the work you're doing, especially as it relates to forensics. You may, you may be creeped out or you may not be feeling it at that moment, but it's your job and you're there as a, in, in a service, as a service to them and to their memories and to their family. And so you got to do the work and it's not always pleasant. I know and a lot of my forensic work that I did over those 16 years with, were with people who were alive and, um, you know, because, you know, forensics goes far beyond, you know, people who have died or, you know, death scenes. There's also forensic work that happens when people are still alive and they're injured or, you know, they're oh. they're very, uh, very maimed or disabled because of an accident or, um, you know, there's that kind of forensics, too, which I, which I did a lot of, um, you know, and there's a lot of depositions and working with lawyers and the police. Um, so, you know, there's two sides of it when you're working in forensics, there's, there's that side and there's also the bad side. But um, for me, when I was working forensics, I'd say it makes 70% of it was people who were alive <laughs> um, and, and working that side. Wow. You know, that's, that's so interesting. Oh yeah. How much of a vested interest did you have? Like, so you're on a forensics team, which means it's months and months before like a trial, probably. Um, would you follow every case that you were involved with to see how like a jury or a judge decided it or do you just kind of like once your part's done you just move on i think it depended on what which case i mean i had some cases that i followed all the way to the end where i had to testify at trial oh wow um so there were some of those kind of cases but then there were some cases where they just brought me in to do like photographs or a day in the life documentary for them and then i never find out what happened like <laughs> i would never hear from them again and nobody would tell me and i don't know their case number or whatever so i wouldn't keep and then I've got so many, there would be so many cases going on at once uh -huh. that it was just like some of them, you're just there for a deposition and you never know what happens. You never know. Wow. Um, you're just there to do the job and then it's done. And then you never see those people again or hear about their case again. Um, and then, but then there's cases where you work on it for months and you're there at trial presenting, you know, evidence and you're doing that part of the work too. So it goes both ways. And kind of in the same vein of like, it goes both ways. Were there times where you felt like you were helping something you didn't want to help with your evidence versus the opposite, which is you thought your evidence obviously was going to, you know, lead to someone's conviction and it didn't? Like, did both of those happen or? Uh, yeah, 
Um, I'd say, well, I don't, I can't say that I had, I ever had a, an incident where I didn't want to do the work for whatever reason. Okay. I don't think I had that experience, but I did have those experiences where I worked on a case and, and sometimes even testified at trial and then they lost the case anyway. And those kind of things really like stuck with me because I felt really bad. Like I was there. Um, I saw what happened. I, I, I hung out with their families. Um, so I had a, a very vested interest in what, what, what happened at the end of the trial. And there were a few of them that, you know, they just didn't win their case. And it, it was hard. It was, I felt so bad. Sometimes I felt like, God, oh, I hope it, I, it wasn't, you know, my, um, lack of, of, you know, work, um, uh, that, that got them, that lost them to trial, you know, or maybe my video wasn't powerful enough or the photographs weren't, um, detailed enough. There were a couple of times where I kind of really felt bad, you know, because I knew that these family needed that case to go to, um, to, you know, be in their favor and then it didn't. So there, and it, and it sticks, it sticks with you for a long time. And there were so, several cases that I can think of where I, didn't have that kind of vested interest where I didn't know how their case went. Maybe they settled, I don't know, but, um, but their story and their experience stuck with me for months or years after. I could never forget about them. I'd always wonder, I wonder how that family is doing. I wonder if their kid is still having a hard time, you know, it, I mean, you just can't help but take that home with you, especially when it involved like Navajo people. I had a few cases where I had to go out to the reservation and, just seeing the 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 impact of what their case meant and and how hard it was going to be for them if they didn't win their case it stuck with me for a long time yeah wow yeah um i have a couple more questions i want to ask about that but i'm actually going to jump to a different one because you just mentioned the navajo part i've always been curious um about the following question so when i was in college i studied the lakota tribe a lot like and that i've just i can't explain it um i've just always cared more about the history of what we call Native Americans in this country than like virtually anything else. And so I studied a lot in college and I do what I can, but my, my question is more about identity. Do you feel like an identity with quote unquote, all Native Americans or are you a Navajo? And I'm asking this as like a Cuban who sometimes gets lumped in with like Latin America or Hispanic and like these other words. And sometimes I'm uncomfortable with that because I'm not really like related to someone from Peru, for example. Right. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. Every, I'm, I'm a Navajo, I'm a Diné person and I don't know anything about, well, I do, but I don't, I don't try to tell anybody about it or talk about it. Um, each tribe is very specific to their own beliefs and, and how, and their languages and all of that. And if, if somebody has a question about like, you say like Lakota people, I don't know anything about Lakota people, you know? So you know, as like when so when somebody says, "Oh, you're Native American," it's such a generalized term, or indigenous, or you know, um, it's it's just a very general term. So when people ask how I want to be identified, I would say as Diné or as a Navajo person because that's how I grew up. That's what I know. And if you ask me questions beyond that, I I will not claim any knowledge of it because I just don't know enough to say anything or to claim to know. So. That's, I mean, so it's very specific to me how that works. And I'm, my, my father also is Mexican and Peruvian and are Mexican and South American. And I don't really know much about my dad's side of the family. 
So I don't really expound about that or, or claim that side of myself because I never really knew my dad and I don't really know much about it. I was raised as a Dene person. I was raised on the nerves with my mom and my grandmother. So that's my identity as far as I'm concerned. I don't really move beyond that. Thank you. That really clarified something for me. And I, and I hope all of us move towards that in a good way. Like not, you know, just stopping these like lump terms. Like like when you said indigenous, that also hit a spot because I index books and a lot of books will just talk about indigenous people. And I'm like, well, that word just technically means you're from the place. So it's kind of a weird term. And right. yeah. And, um, and living in Arizona now for six years, you know, I've now gotten to know a little bit about the Navajo tribe, but like, like I said, the Navajo people aren't the Lakota people. And, and so I don't like understand how to talk about it. So thank you for that answer. That helped me a lot. And kind of segueing back into the forensics topic, uh, what got you into forensics? Was it was it because you wanted to help people or was it just like you love photography? What was the impetus? Well, basically, I when I graduated from college, um, there I applied to or tried to get a job at, at every videography, television station, anywhere where I could work as a camera person or using a camera or editing. And I could not find a job anywhere when I graduated. And I didn't want to do anything else but that. Um, and looking through the back in the day, and there were yellow pages, <laughs> uh, looking through the phone book and seeing, okay, here's a video firm, here's a video firm, and just calling everybody. The one place I called, this place, Golf Visual Services, um, I called him up and I just said, I'm looking for a job. I can do camera. Um, I can take photos. And he said, well, I have this editing machine I just bought and I don't know how to use it. If you want to come use it, figure out how to use it, I'll hire you. Um, and, and then I ended up working for him for 16 years um, and I became his video production manager. He was mostly a photographer, and that was his specialty. He did photos, and he was like a private investigator and stuff like that. But eventually, you know, he was an older guy, so eventually he taught me how to do the photos too So, because he just didn't have, I don't know, his mobility was kind of getting compromised as he got older. So eventually he just sat in the office, and I did all the work. <laughs> um, as it got closer to that, you know, ten, uh, nine, ten-year mark, it was more like that. And uh, so I learned a lot um, doing forensics and um, learning how to photograph injuries and um incidents and scenes and things like that and uh, and he was a private firm you know we I didn't work for the police department we as a firm we as a firm worked for the police like they would bring in a surveillance video or we process like bank robbery video or film I know that's back when the bank robbery cameras were on film they actually had film and you had to develop it and dry it out on chairs and in the <laughs> studio yeah it was crazy so you know, that's the kind of stuff that we did. We did work for the police, but in a secondary way. So a lot of the work was for lawyers and different things like that for, for cases and um, incidents and, you know, zooming in on uh, surveillance videos, that kind of stuff. That makes sense. Okay. That does explain part of my misunderstanding. And then I just have to ask, is the world a darker place than most people think? Or is it just pretty much what people think based on the, what you've gotten to see that many people would never even have a chance to see? Well, um... I think the world is darker than people know. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff, I think, that happens that people don't even realize, especially on the reservations. Um, when you hear about the, the missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives movement, I think they really don't. People are shocked to find out that there's so many missing indigenous people. And like, where did they go? Like, how come we didn't know? And it's because, you know, we just don't have the resources on the reservations. Um, and the way the jurisdictions 
are are policed and managed, um, you know, we have a lot of issues with people getting away with murder and people getting away with abductions and and um, assaults and all kinds of things that happen because there's jurisdictional issues. People who come in off the reservation can, you know, murder and rape and, you know, all these indigenous people. And because they've done it on the reservation, there's jurisdictional issues about, you know, how we can prosecute them or not. And it's a real issue. Um, so for me, as an indigenous person or as a Navajo person, as a native person, there's so many pe- things going on that people don't even know. And it's because, you know, you see when, unfortunately, like, you know, when a, like a white girl gets kidnapped, it's on every it's on every TV station all over the world and everybody knows and everybody's looking for her. Native women disappear every day and nobody looks for them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I noticed it um, really, really prominently, like either last summer or two summers, there was this white girl who went missing and it was like the biggest news story for a month. And it was right on social media. People kept posting like, what about this person? What about this person? Right. Yeah. And it's just, that's why I say I just feel like the world is a lot more darker for people of color than it is for white people. I, people don't know because, you know, they just don't care. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, so the world is a real dark place. It's just, I think it depends where you're looking at the world from. Yeah, and so wh- where would you like to see us go as one people, so as white people and black people and other people of color and native people? How do you see all this positively turning out like what's the next step for all of us well i think everybody deserves a voice and i think that um in order for the world to really kind of get to that point um we all need to be able to have that voice and to be and to also have our voices heard and you know i don't know i wish i had the magic Mm -hmm. formula um for how to make that happen unfortunately i don't but um but I think it's really just a matter of looking and making space for people and, and actually, uh, you know, realizing and accepting the fact that this has been going on and that we're making a change. And I think it's kind of just in the very early periods of changing because, you know, like if you would have asked that same question five or ten years ago, nobody would have known about missing and murdered indigenous women, including myself. I had no idea how many were missing until they finally really started coming out and cataloging them and actually making physical documents about where they're from and how long they've been gone and, you know, uh, where the last time they were. It's just, and I don't know, it's it's disturbing, but I know that every community has this issue. But it's just a matter of, you know, giving voice to those people instead of, um, instead of shutting them out or just dismissing it or not believing. I think people just need to you know, make the effort to listen and, and to give that, give them space. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I can't, I don't, I don't think I can think of anything, but this has really been an interesting discussion. I, I was kind of not what I was expecting. So, I mean, thank you for asking such great questions and um, really mm-hmm. kind of giving a platform for that kind of, those kind of issues and that kind of stuff that goes on because I don't think it's something really people think about, but, you know, even for Diné people, I mean, there were, very fearful of death. It's like our biggest taboo, right? And uh, we don't talk about it. And um, there's there's a huge, you know, misstep there, I think, because, um, you know, it's part of life. And I think that even the Dene people are starting to realize that 
It's something that we just can't put under the, you know, scrape under the rug over and over because it's something that we're going to have to deal with. And uh, as taboo as it may be, um, you know, it's it's just part of our lives. And so it's it's been hard to to make that transition as somebody who grew up with a grandma who was super uh, traditional and about that particular taboo. Uh, it was hard to write the book I wrote and, and hard to do the work I did. And my grandma did not approve of it for at first <laughs> as well. But, you know, it's but it's something that I think people really need to think about and um, think about how they live their lives and how and how you know, what their place is in this world is and how how is that energy and how is the energy and their spirit going to move on and live on, on in, you know, after they're gone? How does that happen? And, and it's always, you got to think about that and put your best foot forward and be kind and um, think about others and think about what other people are going through every day um, because I think it'll give you a little, a little room in your own ego and your own psyche about where you are in your life and and how in many cases how lucky you really are wow thank you so much that was incredible and yes that is the whole point of the show we just want to give people voices and hear from other people my chief goal is to spend as little time talking and as much time listening so thank you ramona for coming on and thank you for pouring out not just your heart but uh your like deepest philosophies and i'm i'm sorry to hear that part about your grandma at the end but i'm also proud of you for marching through and doing what i think is the right thing which is to follow your heart and to help others at all times so i know the pressure we all face from family and friends and just society as a larger whole can be often hard to take but that is the best way to the future that we all want which is where we are kinder more patient and loving so thank you again ramona thank you to everyone who listens to coffin talk um, please spread the word and help us grow if you can and if you have a free minute head over to mikeyop.com that's m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com you can sign up for free and you get one weekly essay along with the show my name is mike oppenheim you have been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon.